Welcome to Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Mill Media Group. Mill Media Group is a proven web design and digital media agency specializing in supporting organizations focusing on the military population. Find more about them at millmediagroup.com. Thanks again to everybody who joined us to listen to an honest conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Bryan from the University of Utah. Shauna, how about you tell us about our guest? Sure. Dr. Craig Bryan is an Air Force veteran, a board-certified clinical psychologist, and executive director of the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah. Craig and his wife, Annabelle, met in Iraq in 2009, when both of them were engaged in military service roles. After separating from the military, at times they've both considered going back in. And their daughter posed this question to them. Why would you think about going back to Iraq when you're both satisfied with your job, with your housing, with really just about everything else in your life? And so as Craig reflected on this question, he realized that the pull of returning to Iraq had a feeling of unfinished business. And then he saw that this was actually an illusion, one that is maybe common to many who serve. As he put it, It's something we do to ourselves, always thinking about what we've done and how it's not good enough, even when we've done more than enough. Before we developed a friendship, I admired Craig and Annabelle for their dedication to the mission of suicide prevention and their ability to engage in both in-the-trenches work with those who are suffering and their high-level thought leadership. Craig and Annabelle are on mission to support fellow veterans. They are considered field-leading experts on suicide and suicide prevention strategies. It's such a pleasure to have them on the podcast as one of our lead-off interviews for Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. You know, I really appreciate that. You know, When we started putting this together, a lot of people, uh, when I said, who should we have on the show, a lot of people uh, said Dr. Craig Bryan. He was usually top of the list. Uh, and so I'm really glad that we were able to have him on the show. Let's get into the conversation. We'll come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. From your perspective, what is the thing that really works when it comes to preventing suicide in the military population? There's sort of two, I think, arms to thinking about what works in suicide prevention. One one arm uh, falls on the healthcare side of the house, and then the other arm uh, is outside of the healthcare system. And I, I point that out because we know, you know, 70% of veterans who die by suicide are not actively seeking out uh, mental health care at the time of their death. Um, and that seems to be true for both active duty currently serving military as well as um, those who are no longer in military service. Um, And historically, we have focused almost exclusively on the treatment side. Um, And so when we look at that, I mean, the sort of the good news, the hopeful news is that we have actually detected a signal, things that work within the healthcare setting. So a lot of the work that we've done um, in my lab, for instance, looks at brief cognitive behavioral therapy for suicide prevention, as well as crisis response planning. These are pretty simple, straightforward outpatient therapeutic interventions that have been shown to reduce suicidal behavior by anywhere from 60 to 76%. Then the second arm, if we go to what can we do outside of the healthcare system, I think there are two key factors. The single most important is doing a much better job 
of focusing on safety as it relates to gun ownership. 70% of service members and veterans who die by suicide use a gun. Um, and statistics suggest that, interestingly enough, the individuals who are most likely to use a gun to kill themselves, they tend to be men. Um, and they actually tend to be people without a mental illness. Uh, but we know that if people were to lock up their guns, if they use safes, if they use gun locks or trigger locks, things along those lines, that's actually been shown to reduce suicide deaths by up to 50%. Um, and, and in many ways, it's similar to, you know, we wear seatbelts when we drive a car, even though we don't intend to get into an accident. And of course, none of us are actually bad drivers. Everybody else is the bad driver. But we buckle up anyway to be safe. And in many ways, I think we need to buckle up those of us who are gun owners because sometimes things go down quickly. We go from zero to 60 really fast and every second, every minute that slows us down in those moments can potentially save our lives. Now, then the last thing I'll point out uh, for outside of the healthcare system is I think we really need to focus on communities um, and quality of life issues. And what I mean by this is we, we have become so obsessed with this whole like resiliency and individual pathology model where when we think about suicide, we say, well, this person didn't have enough coping skills. They were experiencing stress, things like that. But uh, most of us understand the things that stress us out the most in life, uh, you know, it's perhaps financial strain. Um, it's, you know, having uh, a job or work that isn't particularly meaningful. It's um, having all of these trainings, like these computer-based trainings that we just keep getting asked to do over and over again. Um, and then when we get stressed out and burnt out, it's in essence, we say, well, you're the problem. You just need better coping skills when really it's in many ways the system itself that's pressuring us. And I, I think we've forgotten that one of the key ways that we could potentially reduce suicide is by improving quality of life, by really kind of looking at how can we change the workplace, family life, our communities in a way that we help to remove or reduce the sort of constant pressure that wears people down. You know, that's really great. I, I'm thinking of as a clinical mental health professional myself and, and my colleagues and, and you and your colleagues, um, we understand suicide prevention. We know what works, but the veteran or the military family member is not likely to come in contact with us right away, right? Uh, we are that second stage intervention beyond the gatekeepers, beyond the pastors, beyond the law enforcement or, or first responders, or even beyond the family members, right? So the ones who are maybe most familiar with these suicide interventions that work are least likely to come in contact with the veteran. Then on the other side, outside the healthcare system, the range owners, the gun shop owners who can have that influence over gun safety, or the person that's working on veteran homelessness or veteran employment, they're not thinking about suicide prevention. So there's a disconnect right. there. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, and I think this is this is sort of like one of my stomping points um, right now. It's been for the past few years is that we have we have gone so full tilt into this mental illness model of suicide prevention that everything we do, all of our warning signs, all of our recommendations are all geared around going and getting help. And uh, But when we really look at the data, we know that at least half of those who die by suicide do not have a diagnosable mental illness. And so we're in essence telling people, look out for these things that don't apply to half of the population. 
And then we're encouraging individuals to seek out treatment, even though they don't necessarily have the problems or the conditions that would warrant them to seek out that treatment. But yeah, we have these sort of these non-mental health individuals who actually probably play a way bigger role in suicide prevention um, in the same way that, you know, when, when we look at how we've been able to reduce, you know, traffic fatalities, for instance, um, you know, as a result of drunk driving, we didn't like go around and tell everyone, well, you need to go into counseling for substance abuse so that you don't get into a car crash and, you know, kill yourself or kill someone else. What we did is we came up with ideas like friends don't let friends drive drunk. When does this matter the most? How do you prevent an alcohol-related traffic fatality? It's when a bunch of friends are hanging out with each other at someone's house on the weekend and everyone's partying and having a good time. And then someone says, all right, I'm going home. And it's somebody else saying, no, you can't drive. And those are the moments that make a difference. And the same applies when it comes to firearm ownership and suicide prevention of family members and friends stepping in and saying, let's not wait until someone becomes incredibly distressed and has a mental illness, um, there are these sort of key moments in time where we could potentially intervene with each other and say, hey, let me hang on to your guns for a while while you go through this tough time. Um, it, it's these simple little things that actually can make such an enormous difference. You know, and, and that's one of the things that, uh, and maybe that what might not be working is this focus solely on the, the mental health professionals, because if, if you and I as clinicians, if we had the solution then the problem would be solved already, right? We, right. we wouldn't have this issue. Um, what are some of the things that people think that are working that simply, you know, the research shows that just aren't? Yeah, I would say um, the per perhaps the, the most pervasive idea about suicide prevention that doesn't really seem to hold this much water as we often assume is this notion that if you treat depression or if you treat some of these other mental health conditions, you can prevent suicide. Um, the, the data actually suggests that the things that prevent suicide are, are actually different uh, from mental illness. Now, it's not to say that things like depression are totally irrelevant, but there's something else that seems to contribute to reductions in suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, and so we know that if you just treat the depression, it, it helps a person to feel better, but doesn't actually reduce their risk for trying to kill themselves. Um, and so the, the best way that I've, I've found to think about this is um, sort of like when we're driving our cars, we have an accelerator and we have a brake. The accelerator speeds us up and helps us go forward. But if you take your foot off the accelerator, you'll slow down, but you won't necessarily stop right away. That's what the brake is for. So these are two completely different like systems within our car. And I think mental illness works in that same way. Mental illness, depression, you know, other problems in life are kind of like the accelerator. It might help move us towards suicide, but simply eliminating those things don't necessarily apply the break. Um, and so you can feel better as a result of therapy or treatment, but some people still continue to be at risk for suicide, which is why many of us, if you think about family members and friends, it's sort of like been this mystery for a long time of they were doing better. I don't really understand. And I think it's because we've, we've not really kind of conceptualized that maybe the brake pedal is different from the accelerator pedal. Um, and so in essence, we've in many ways been barking up the wrong tree, I think, for many, many years. 
You know, and I think that's very important. You know, not everyone who has depression goes on to, to take their own life. Not everybody uh, with anxiety or all of these, you know, not all of the common factors are there, which we can say this leads to suicide. I, I understand there's maybe like 20 different factors now um, that especially looking at service member and veterans that feed in one way or another uh, to contribute to someone deciding to take their own life. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, kind of related to that, you know, one of the other sort of long held assumptions that we've had that seems to be wrong is we, we've always looked for what is the right combination of those 20 factors that lead to suicide. But in reality, there can be different combinations of those factors. Um, and so there might be different sort of pathways or different trajectories or types of suicide. And so another reason we're not very effective is because we're looking for the one cause and the one solution, but maybe they're actually different solutions and different strategies. Um, and so we were perhaps something like on the treatment side, we've got now some interventions that are actually really effective. Like I said, I mean, the most, the most promise I think we have in suicide prevention is actually on the therapy side, but that's not going to prevent all suicides. And it never will because other people get to suicide through a very, very different mechanism. And so we need to come up with a variety of options that are better suited to meet the unique combination of variables um, that exist. Hi, I'm Melissa Mosier. I'm a local Army spouse, daughter, sister, and a proud team member of Mill Media. I'm here at our headquarters at The Great Place, Fort Head, Texas, as you should know. Mill Media is a military-affiliated team that wants to serve you the way that you served our country, with mostly military retirees, veterans, and families as our staff. We understand the military mindset. Mill Media is the one place that prioritizes your goals above all else, which you will see from our incredible customer service. With over 25 years of experience, we work with everyone from startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and nonprofits. Mill Media Group is the digital division of Top Search Business Solution that specializes as a web design and digital marketing platform. So visit our website today for a free website analysis so that you can sit back, relax, and let us give you the perfect online presence. To hear more about what Mill Media is doing and will continue to do, call me today at 254-554-0974 or visit our website. That's millmediagroup.com. So call me whenever you're ready. So in, in, is that maybe where one of the gaps are, is getting the information that we know works as clinicians, um, the folks at SAMHSA, the CDC's technical package to prevent suicide, the VA's uh, uh, suicide prevention programs, research, we know what the research works, but it's getting it into the hands of the people that can actually use it? I think, um, I mean, I think that's part of it. Like we, we do know that there is sort of this delay between research findings and implementation of the those findings. Um, but I think a lot of it is making sure it's, it's sort of like understanding how seemingly contradictory research findings can perhaps not be so contradictory after all. And that's where I think sometimes a lot of confusion comes from is you look at these studies and, you know, uh, you know, a certain treatment works in this study, but doesn't seem to work in that study. I think maybe part of what it comes down to is that 
again, some of these strategies and ideas do work under some circumstances, um, but I don't think as researchers, um, you know, we've really taken that into account uh, because it's hard. It's hard to do that. Um, And so we can end up sort of washing out a lot of our conclusions because we're not truly capturing um, the, the actual complexity and nature of suicide. And I think that goes back to the community-based aspect of it too, is, is what may be some of the primary and the 20 causes in one community may not be the, the same in another community. Um, here in El Paso County, we're approaching probably 14 to 15% density, just veterans. But Houston, for example, only has 4%, but has a greater number, right? So the what will work in El Paso County Colorado Springs, Colorado won't necessarily work in Houston. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, and, and those differences, you know, that we see across the community, there are different reasons that contribute to those differences. So if you look at, again, like El Paso County, Here's a different region of the country. Um, it's you know largely uh, you know uh, focused on army. Whereas if you go um, to like um, like say San Antonio, Texas, there's more of like an air force type of presence. Um, and of course, each branch of service has a somewhat different uh, culture. You know we have a lot in common, but we also have different ways about going about doing things. But then there are regional differences within uh, the the country as a whole, um, and so. Yeah, what works in El Paso might not necessarily be the same thing that works in San Diego. And it's one of those things where it's sort of like it's unfortunate, right? Because it'd be nice if one thing worked everywhere. Um, But that's just sort of a reflection of how life actually is. And it's okay. That doesn't mean that nothing ever works. It just means I think we need to be a little bit more intentional and thoughtful about trying to find the ways to take something like BCBT that we know works, but how do we make sure that we tailor it and adapt it to these different communities? And I think that's uh, in, in operating at the community level, that's what I've seen as a challenge is taking what we know, again, works at the national level, um, but then applying it to uh, to to our community, right? Um, and we're trying to, from my observation, trying to apply interventions across the board, irregardless of culture. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's something that I've uh, thought a lot about as a as a psychologist who does treatment research is distinguishing between the core principles and mechanisms of a particular intervention or a treatment or uh, a program um, from sort of like the surface features, the the packaging or, or the, uh, you know, the, the gift wrapping. Um, and so in many cases, there are these core concepts and ideas that can be sort of transported from one community community to another. So it's, you know, increasing economic stability is a a factor that will keep people from getting into financial crisis or or losing a job. But the way that we would uh, implement economic security is different in a rural community than in an urban or semi-urban. Yeah. It's like, and the way in which we, each of us experiences economic stability might be different. And so if we were to just come in and say, well, everybody is going to get um, education on, you know, like credit card, uh, you know, management, something like that. Well, that isn't necessarily going to be the way to effectively stabilize uh, and provide financial security for every single person who feels strained. Um, and so there, there might be a number of ways that we help people to feel more economically stable, but 
we shouldn't just assume that everyone is the same and everyone is stressed out for the same reasons. Yeah, because I think then we get into the um, a, a, a transactional trap in which you know uh, take two financial stability classes and call me in the morning, right? Or here, right. or here's a resume class, or let me just get you a job. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and I think of it like it, you know, for me, uh, kind of the practical Im- impact on you know, kind of like a mental health side is you know, like the center that I run, we're really good at treating PTSD. Uh, suicide risk and depression. Um, if you're a veteran, though, and we've received these calls, you know, veterans call us and they have other problems. They, you know, we've had individuals, veterans diagnosed with like, um, uh, like bipolar disorder. Um, we've had veterans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, or eating disorders, things like that. And, you know, we say, hey, you know, that's not our thing. You know, it's, we want to be able to help you, but it's sort of like, that's not really what we're good at. And so I don't think you're going to be well served by us and being comfortable with that because if, if all you have is a hammer, um, everything looks like a nail. It's like, well, if all you have is a hammer, just know what a nail looks like because that's an appropriate tool to use in that circumstance. But recognize, hey, this isn't a nail. This is a screw. Maybe we need to find a screwdriver instead. And I think that's the other piece that many of us have been working towards in in the, the military and veteran community is making those connections as if someone does come with an eating disorder, well, we may not be the place, but there's this great place in at UCLA that that really does great work with military service members and eating disorders. Um, what kind of action steps, right? You know, so somebody's listening to this, obviously it's two clinicians talking to each other and we've used, you know, the, the, the crazy acronyms and stuff like that, but somebody listening to this, what are some action steps that they can take to prevent suicide in their home, their community, things like that? Yeah, I think um, if, if we stick with that spirit of um, kind of looking at this from a community perspective, and, and I found it very valuable to think of suicide prevention from an injury prevention model. So what are the things that we do to prevent our loved ones, our family members from experiencing injury in general? And it involves things like you know, removing hazards from the environment. It's, you know, if we, all of us who have little kids, you know, we know that you can't store cleaning supplies and chemicals underneath the sink, you know, without a lock on it. And so we move things, we lock things up, we store them away to protect, you know, the people that we care about. Um, likewise, all of us, when we, you know, in our homes, we have things like smoke detectors, and carbon monoxide detectors, uh, things like that to help protect and and preserve our safety and security. And so if we take that approach and apply it to suicide, this is where I think if we get back to the notion of um, do we um, keep large quantities of medication in the home? You know, know, Mm -hmm. if you're not using the medication anymore, it's expired, uh, but yet we have lots of pills uh, laying around that in some cases could be a potential hazard uh, as it relates to suicide. Uh, Firearm storage is the clearest. I I think that's actually the single simplest and most effective thing we could do to prevent suicide. It's, you know, just locking up guns. You don't have to necessarily completely get rid of them, but just locking them up. Um, That is, we already know that's been shown to reduce suicides by 50% or more. I mean, it doesn't actually really require that much effort from us. Um, Likewise, if if you have a friend or a family member who's going through a rough patch, be the designated driver, so to speak, and offer to hang on to their firearms in the same way that you would temporarily take away 
their keys and not let them drive. Um, I think it's in the workplace as well, being sure that um, we express gratitude and appreciation to each other. Um, it's something like when, I, when I've consulted with military leaders over the years, for instance, and this is true, I think, of even families sometimes and other organizations, where I ask questions like, well, how often do you thank people? for the work that they've done, for completing tasks. And when I hear, you know, someone in an authority position saying, well, but that's their job, they're expected <laughs> to do it. It's like immediately I'm like, well, now I know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. um, and it's because those little things, you know, make a big difference. Think of, think of the jobs that you've had that you really enjoyed. Um, think of the friends that you have that you care about the most. They typically express to you appreciation. They thank you for the little things. They back you up. They support you. And they reach out to you in times of need. And even, even when you're not in need, they just send you a text message every once in a while and say, hey, I was thinking about you. Hope you're doing okay. Or, hey, I read this funny article online. It reminded me of you. And these are the little things that we can actually do on a day-to-day -day basis that influence and reduce the probability of a person uh, kind of tipping over the edge when they find themselves in that momentary moment of despair. You know, and that's uh, the idea of, well, be nice to each other, right? It, it's, yeah. it's sort of that human piece, but, but that's the prevention piece. Let's keep people from getting into that suicidal crisis. And then there's that piece of the intervention piece. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, thanks for taking the time and uh, hopefully uh, the listeners get some benefit out of this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was really great to be able to talk to Craig. Uh, had a really great time. Um, I, I kind of really didn't want to cut it off. I, these are, again, some of these conversations that we can really have for hours and hours. Uh, what did you think about what Craig and I were talking about, Shauna? I thought it was a great interview. I mean, he goes into so many things that require a paradigm shift in our thinking uh, in terms of the behavioral health emphasis that we've had as a field. Um, you know, he makes the point that so many times people who die by suicide do not have a mental illness. Uh, so non-mental health factors play a strong role. And this is something that you and I both know, Dwayne, such an important point. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that was one thing that really um, kind of drove home for me was that, uh, you know, a, a financial crisis or a relationship crisis, you know, there's no diagnosis for, you know, getting fired from your job. And so it may, well, those things may lead to um, some type of anxiety, but it's sort of natural anxiety and it's just life. It's not a diagnosed mental illness. Right. It's just part of being human. And, you know, I think so many times in the suicide prevention field, we've had for many years a kind of get thee to the doctor model for suicide prevention. And so what Craig is sharing here is really bringing attention to the fact that there are these bigger issues in terms of life stressors and transitions. Yeah, and I think this goes to, again, some of the stuff that we've talked about um, is that, like you said, to get thee to the doctor, but it's not just us. Um, it's the people who are helping with employment in veterans or, or military spouses or, um, you know, people who know that the, the military spouse, the military child is a caregiver, um, that it's more than just a responsibility for what we're calling, quote unquote, experts like you and me. Right. And in fact, a very humbling thing, I wrote about this topic, the limitations of the professional defender model in a chapter in my next book, which is coming out in the spring. And I talked about some recent data 
that was um, collected by the Department of Defense. It's really humbling. It said that an active duty service member who's struggling is actually more likely to turn to a military peer, a friend outside the military, a parent, a spouse over a professional mental health provider. And in fact, in a list of 12 potential categories of people that an active duty service member would talk to when they're feeling stressed or overwhelmed, mental health providers are actually 10th on the list, just slightly above attorneys. So, uh, you know, as a behavioral health provider, um, I really do believe that treatment works. And I believe that we need to resource a whole bunch of people to respond when those they love are in distress. You know, that's a, that's definitely a great point and, and glad we beat out the lawyers. Yeah, I really like his analogy of the injury prevention model. This really takes the public health approach and applies it to suicide prevention messaging. So just as he said, you know, how do we prevent loved ones from getting injuries. He's equating this to uh, initiatives like wearing seatbelts or not letting friends drive drunk. These are very successful public health initiatives that have had hugely positive impacts on our behavior. Um, So then he talks about, you know, do we keep large quantities of medications at home? Or I know that in Craig's work, um, firearms are a big focus of his efforts. So, you know, talking about are these stored in ways that minimize risk of using them um, in ways that the owner didn't purchase them for. So in other words, many veterans own firearms because uh, they want to use them for self-protection or protection of those they love. But at a time of overwhelming stress, they can be turned on the self um, in a tragic turn of events. And so by thinking about this possibility in advance and approaching it from a safety-focused perspective, we can ask ourselves, does the way we store a firearm align with the owner's intent or our intent, as the case may be? Yeah, you know, I mean, and this is uh, this is something that really is on the individual. Um, don't talk about this uh, very often, but my dad, after coming back from Vietnam, and, and he was a, uh, a St. Louis City cop in the 70s, so we don't know where PTSD from one ended and the other began. But one of the things mm-hmm. growing up is we never had guns in our house because he saw what happened. He had so many calls that he would respond to with accidents or things like that when there were guns readily available. I mean, we obviously had different measures of protection in the house. It wasn't that we were unprotected, but it's an individual responsibility. It's a family safety responsibility, just like mm-hmm. not to be demeaning, but childproofing. Well, it's right. You're coming down to the level of what the individual's values are and why they own that firearm in the first place and then how you know they're setting themselves up to use it in that way or not. Um, it can be a safety issue when people are struggling or you know at a time of overwhelming stress. Um, and it makes a lot of sense to me, you know, intuitively to just equate that conversation to other public health initiatives that have kept people in the fight just by better safety measures, you know, in advance. Yeah, you know, I think and and even thinking back to the conversation I'd mentioned, you know, we don't even it's not even a second thought. As soon as we get in the vehicle, we buckle up, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. I, I know that's the case for me. Um, and I know that when I was growing up, it wasn't always like that, right? So we have made this shift of um, you know, keys in the bucket or let's take an Uber. You know, so there are just things that have become part of the norm uh that we need to get there with suicide prevention as well. Yeah. I mean, at the same time as he's saying, rightfully so, I think that it's an individual decision about how we store firearms. Um, For example, we all play a role in kind of looking out for each other. 
So the public health initiative says, you know, individuals make choices, but we can influence them with the force of our love and our trust. And so at the same time, you know, there's been this focus on um, really like we talked about, you know, the individual mental health provider, when really it's about the, the tribe of individuals that surround us and how connected we are with them and how, um, how we look out for each other in kind of a collective way. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and maybe one final thing that you, uh, you got from our conversation. Yeah, one of the other paradigm shifts that he talks about is um, instead of simply recognizing, you know, the signs of suicide or focusing on individual resilience, maybe a shift to focusing on, um, again, getting away from just the individual resilience and more of those bigger level contextual factors and the social tribe that surrounds us. So it's not that, you know, these things aren't important, that behavioral health solutions, individual resilience, recognizing the signs, they're important, but I think we agree that they're not sufficient to address the issue of suicide. And so I've just, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about Craig is that he says the things that people think. Um, he says it uh, boldly and bravely, and um, he makes a lot of sense, and it fits with my experience. Um, as a mental health professional, I think we do need to shift the paradigm in this way. So I thought it was a great interview. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And and I think that, uh, again, really sets a tone, uh, you know, and listeners, you'll hear it through uh, a number of these different interviews. Um, uh, there are some common themes, and then there's something that we're going to pick up uh, every different interview. Um, and so uh, hopefully we'll be able to get to a point where um, the 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 message will start to change. Yep. I'm with you on that. So thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Make sure to check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com. You can get the links to all the things that Craig and I talked about on the episode, as well as finding the show notes at militarytimes.com. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Mill Media Group. They're a web design and digital media agency with over 25 years of experience in supporting service members, veterans, and their families. They specialize in working with startups, small businesses, entrepreneurs, nonprofits, and city, state, and local governments. As a veteran-owned business, they're uniquely qualified to work with those who want to reach an audience in the military and veteran community. If you have a dream or a vision, they can help you bring it to life and get it in front of your audience. You can contact them at one 554 or find them online at millmediagroup.com. You can find out more about the work that Shauna's doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.